Amen. That secret place. What a special spot that is. Amen. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 tonight. Glad you're here and we certainly are thankful to the Lord for our health, the ability that we have to be in God's house. And there are a number of folks that would love to be in God's house that just can't be here. They're unable to physically. Boy, aren't you glad you're still able to get out and go? And you might be a little crippled up. You might have some problems here and there. Maybe you're not quite as astute to walking and getting around as you used to be. But boy, I'll tell you what, you're still here. That's a wonderful thing. There'll come a day when if we live long enough, all of us, we probably won't be able to make it to church. We'll be what they call shut-ins. So we might take advantage of it, I think, huh? Be in our place and let God speak to our heart and be encouraged in the fellowship of believers. 
Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. There we begin reading in chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude. Aren't you glad he has compassion on the multitude? He goes on to say, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. He's just saying there's a number of them that came a long way. If I send them home now, they'll still not eat anything. They'll be in a mess. He goes on to say, and his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, how many loaves have ye? Sound familiar? And they said, seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people, and they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat, and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about four thousand, and he sent them away. Once again, we are, you know, confronted with a, an account, I should say, of Jesus and his disciples and their life. What a wonderful thing I suppose it would have been, or at least it would seem from our vantage point, to have had the privilege and the opportunity to spend time with the Savior 101. To be able to travel with him and ultimately be able to see him do these mighty miracles that we read about today in the Word of God. These men of God had sacrificed. They had allowed themselves to be even at some point separated from family and friends and to travel with the Savior, to spread the truth that He was Messiah, that He was not a mere man, but God Himself. They were living the dream, I guess we could say. But it wasn't always a cakewalk, was it? Now we find them at the Sea of Galilee on the coast of Decapolis. The people had been a long time with the Lord. For three days, he'd been sharing and teaching and helping and trying to encourage them. And he's concerned now that some of them may grow so weary that they may faint in the wilderness, that they will not be able to make it home, that possibly even they would be so weary they wouldn't even make it home again. I feel like Adeline up here. Little Adeline, every time she hears whistling or if she hears a song of any sort, of course, good music only, she starts to do all this. And I'm like, wow. Dancing with the star. Adeline, she's the star of our house. You know what I mean? So I get in it with her and I start busting a move and I start going crazy. No, I don't bust a move. But anyway, you know, it's fun. We have a good time with it. So you want to keep that going. I'm going to start moonwalking any moment now. So anyway, here they are. The people had been a long time with him. So he's concerned. I mean, what in the world's going to happen? They'll faint in the wilderness. They may not even make it home. He longs to feed them and expresses 
a desire, that desire to his disciples in verses 2 through 3. Are, again, compassion on the people. I mean, he sees their need and he wants to meet that need. And so in verses 2 and 3 he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And he said, I just can't do it, guys. I can't send them away fasting. I can't do it. I just can't. And so the disciples respond to this. Notice what they say in verse 4. His disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Well, that's an interesting statement. I mean, Jesus is feeling the urgency of the situation. He, he, he then takes seven loaves and a few small fishes. And he commands the people to sit on the ground now. So the food's blessed and it's passed out. And when it's, you know, when all had eaten, uh, there were seven baskets that remained. As I read the response of the disciples in this particular portion of Scripture, uh, you know, I guess I couldn't help but think about how often I've responded in the same way. I mean, how in the world can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? How's that going to happen? How's that possible? And in Mark chapter 6, it's interesting because we read about the time whenever he fed 5,000. You've got to understand it was just, it was prior to this. We know that Jesus' ministry didn't last more than probably three and a half years, his earthly ministry. So we know that the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, I mean, even if he did it the very day he started, which we know he didn't, and he, he waited till the day before he died to, on the cross to, to, to feed the 4,000, would have only been three to three and a half years, even at that. And we know it wasn't that long between time. We are positive of that. So the qu- point is, is this. They had just watched Jesus Christ feed 5,000 people. Five loaves and two fishes, and he placed them in in groups of 50, and there he fed the men, and he fed the women, and he fed the children. A supernatural feeding. Chapter 6. By the way, there were 12 baskets full left. I mean, these disciples had followed the Lord. They had experienced miracle after miracle after miracle. And still, in spite of it all, they are bound in unbelief. Here they are now before just 4,000, not 5,000 men, but 4,000. And now they're questioning whether or not a man, Jesus Christ, could possibly feed these people. It's funny, these same disciples were there when Simon's mother-in-law was healed of her fever. They watched how Jesus raised her out of that bed of affliction and she began to serve the Lord and those that were there in the household. Chapter 1. They were there when the demons were being cast out. They were there when the leper was healed. They were there in chapter 2 as the palsy man received a healing. As he, as the Lord Jesus Christ healed the man with the withered hand in chapter 3, they were there. I mean, they were there when the maniac of Gadara was supernaturally transformed and changed in chapter 5. And of course, as we mentioned, they were there when the 5,000 were fed. Jesus, walking on the Sea of Galilee in chapter 6, oh, they were there. They saw it firsthand. They experienced it firsthand. There in chapter 7, they saw the Syrophoenician woman's daughter he- helped and, and healed and the demon cast out. 
In chapter 7 also, the the deaf and the dumb man was healed right before their very eyes. And now in chapter 8, our chapter here, our text, we see 4,000 people fed by Jesus Christ. But the plot thickens. You think about their forefathers. You think about those that came before the disciples. Their Jewish fathers. They had the same situation in their day, did they not? In their particular case, they would ultimately ask the same question, basically. Turn to Psalm chapter 78. I mean, they were from a long line of doubters. And so are we. Chapter 78 of the book of Psalm. Psalms chapter 78, verse 19 and 20. There in the wilderness they said, Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Sounds very similar to their question, doesn't it? Just a little bit earlier. When they said, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? But they, their fathers, said, Yea, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, he smote the rock, that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Boy, those are the kind of questions that they asked in the wilderness. God had supernaturally provided manna. He supernaturally provided water and meat in the wilderness for his people. And still, this very people in the wilderness watched as he, he I mean, they, 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 these men watched as he now ate, uh, fed 4,000 people. 4,000. Well, I tell you what, those folks in the Old Testament learned a harsh lesson, didn't they? For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness. What's the price when we fail to believe that God can? The disciples have witnessed the many miracles of Jesus now. Oh, their forefathers fell into the same trap, asking the very same questions. Can God? Can God? Can God? They'd seen the 5,000 fed. And now they face 4,000. They ask the question, the Lord, He feeds the 4,000 now. But we're not finished. Upon feeding the 4,000, Jesus and the disciples, they take passage in a ship. They make their way to Dalmanutha. And there they encounter the Pharisees. Those particular Pharisees, they taught false doctrine. Matter of fact, they didn't believe that Jesus was Messiah at all. So look, if you would, in Mark chapter 8 again. Look at verse 13. The 4,000 have been fed. And now we come to verse 13. The Bible says, And he left them and entered into the ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They forgot to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. This is great. It's because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, 
Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Say, what do you mean? He goes on to say, Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not, and do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many basketfuls of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many basketful of fragments took ye up? They said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? In baseball, you get three strikes and you're out. Fortunately for the disciples, that wasn't the case. And fortunately for you and I, it's not the case. Amen? After all the times that Jesus had supernaturally met their need, after all the times He had supernaturally met the need of others, after He'd met the need of His followers, they still continued to live in insecurity and fear. They still found themselves fearful of tomorrow. They still found themselves worried about their present need. Constantly concerned about what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, where they're going to rest, what they're going to do. So concerned, so concerned all the time about their immediate needs. It seemed that each situation was the beginning of another drama that would ultimately yield the same end. I mean, Jesus would step up and meet the need. That's how it always ended. And so a cycle was embedded, it seemed, in stone. The need arose. They fretted. Jesus saved. A need arose. They fretted. Jesus saved. A need arose. They fretted. Jesus saved. That seems how it went. So even after 5,000 were fed, and after the 4,000 ate to full, the disciples could only see one loaf of bread on board when really before them stood the bread of life. Isn't that amazing? Look at John 6.35. That's amazing. Notice what it says here. It says, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Jesus was the bread of life. See, one of the problems I believe in this particular situation is that the disciples saw him, watch this, they saw a man instead of Messiah. They saw a man instead of the master of the universe standing before them. In Mark chapter 8, verse 4, it says, And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Can I tell you your view of Jesus Christ will change your view of your circumstances? How you see the Lord Jesus Christ will determine how you view your situation and circumstances. How many times do we face our problems with hopelessness? How many times we find ourselves buried under the weight of circumstances? And we look upon man for the answer. 
We seek for men to fix our problem. We look to some self-help book. We go to some PhD. We try to read something that will solve our problem and fix our circumstance, when in reality, all along, there is Jesus Christ that is there on our behalf. But the problem is we see Him no different than we see any other. It's the reality of it. I mean, who is it that you trusted as your Savior? Was it a mere man? Like the disciples said, as they faced uh, uh, this problem, this situation, can a man, when the the 4,000 stood before them, when Jesus had compassion on them, when Jesus just said, hey, it's time to feed these people. Well, how in the world is that going to happen? From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread? Since whence can you, Jesus, a mere man, do this job? Let me tell you, the disciples did not see him the way they should have. After all the miracles he had done, after everything he had accomplished, they still saw him another way other than Messiah, God in flesh, Emmanuel with us. So our view of Christ will change our view of the situation around us. It's just the way it is. It's the reality. Was Jesus the one who saved you simply a good man? Or was he Emmanuel, God with us? In Matthew 19, 26, it says, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. See, a mere man rightly presents some major concerns on our behalf. But God leaves no room for doubt. When you have God, there's no room for doubt. When you're facing a problem with a mere man, you've got concerns. You've got issues. Now, hold on a second. We would all agree in this room that Jesus Christ is more than a mere man, would we not? We'd all say that He is God in flesh and He is Jesus Christ. He is creator of all the universe. We would all say that in this room probably tonight. I don't think any of us would question that or say, I don't believe that. And yet when our situations in our lives arise, when circumstances that seem to overwhelm us come into our our life, we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to feel hopeless and to somehow feel like we are just too buried in this problem. We can't find any joy. We can't find any peace. We can't find any, any solution to our problems. What does that say about us and our real view of Jesus Christ? What does that really say about how we view Him, see Him, and, and, and believe, you know, and really understand about Him? I mean, really, let's be honest. I mean, the first time our bills, are, we're struggling to pay a bill, we freak out, we lose our mind, and everybody around us pays for it. The moment that it looks like we're going to lose our job, we can't control ourselves, and we're over here weeping and falling apart and losing our minds. Whence can a man get save my job? Whence can a man meet my need? Whence can a man save a marriage? Whence can a man raise a teen? Whence can a man? A man can't, but Jesus Christ can. I have two pressing questions for each of us tonight. Number one, here it is. Will we put God on trial every time a need arises? That's what the disciples were doing. Every time, can God do this? Can man, can a person actually get this? Or do we have any hope here at all, Jesus? 
Are you kidding me? After every time he's proved himself, after all the times he stepped up, after every situation that he has resolved, we're still going to put him on trial and say, can God? And we do that, don't we? So the next question is this then. How many times does he have to prove himself before we will trust him? Is it five times? Is it ten times? Is it five times ten? Is it five hundred? Is it five thousand? Or maybe we could be honest with ourselves. Is it never? How sad is that? To think that God's people who experience God's presence and God's power in their life never find enough faith in their heart to truly trust God in the midst of circumstances and situations that are not in our control. What is faith anyway? Is faith found when you can resolve the problem and you can fix it? No, it's when you can't and only He can. Or it's when you at least take your hands completely off and say, I will not solve it. I will not step in. I will not try to resolve this situation. I'm going to leave it in His court and do nothing till He tells me. You say, my situation is different. Well, they're all different to some degree or another, aren't they? But at what point do we finally believe? At what point do we stop concentrating on the problem and start focusing on the person who always comes through? If we would look at our past and we would start to go through the well, years ago, you used to have little files. You'd go through card files and stuff like that. We don't do those anymore. Now you have to you search on some kind of search program and everything comes up. But if we could search our past and we could look at every circumstance and every situation that appeared to be overwhelming and hopeless. As we look back on it, we can say, whoop, there's God's hand. Oh, there's God's presence. Oh, there's God's purpose. Oh, there's God in the midst of that situation. We would say that. We would recognize that. We would see that. But for some reason, we have very short memories, don't we? We have such short memories. Our judgment is often clouded again by our circumstances and our many limitations. You know, you are limited and so am I. I mean, there are some people that have a little bit more intellectual ability than others, some that have a little bit more uh, physical ability than others. There are people that are a little taller in stature, some a little shorter. There's all kind of limitations, or there are some things we're good at, some things we're bad at, but the fact is every one of us as human beings have some tremendous limitations. There is no way in the world that you and I can resolve every problem in our own strength. But God has no limitations. I mean, He's not limited by anything. His movements, His his influence is not confined by any social, political, or economic boundaries. His work is not slowed or stifled by exhaustion. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. He doesn't awake to, to apprehension or dread or fear of the day. Not like us. We wake up and go, wow, this is going to be a rough one. Wow, I don't know if I can make it through. God never wakes up that way. 
He's sure, he's confident, and he has every reason to be sure and confident. Every way of God is good. Every way of God is right, and every way of God is just. Every effort that he puts forth is complete and sufficient. You know, most people get around to finally trusting the Lord, don't they? You know, if we, we, we meander long enough in a bad situation, sooner or later, as believers, we finally come to the conclusion that we might as well trust Him. When we get there, sooner or later, it just seems that way. I suppose that's not the case always, but it does seem that most get there sooner or later. But very few people graduate to the desire to that desired plane that God has for us. The desired plane of total obedience and total dependence and complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest obstacle we face today in our Christian lives is a word called ownership. Probably the greatest problem we face. I mean, we have been conditioned by the, the, the outlook of the world in which we live to view our existence as my life, my life, my life. This is my life. That, that's how we've been conditioned. We take ownership. It's my life. When in reality, as a believer, it's his life. Look, if you would, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is speaking here. I wonder if we, if we could really say in our heart that we trust God. Because if you could trust God, then, then you can turn over everything to Him, trusting Him to do what's in your best interest. The problem is, too often we fail to trust God because we really don't know Him. If we knew Him as He describes Himself and as He he reveals himself in Scripture, and as he even does only, even in our own lives, if we'll just keep our eyes open, we come to the place where we say, wow, he is so trustworthy. He makes it much better in my life than I could make it myself. He's able to do much more with what I present and have, so to speak, here, than what I could ever do with it. Everything that he does is always better than what I can do. Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He goes on in Philippians 1.21 to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Boy, that's an amazing outlook, isn't it? I mean, I died with Jesus Christ when I received and accepted His Son. I'm dead today. I'm not even alive except in Christ Jesus. Everything I am, everything I believe I myself to be is a direct result of what He is doing and has done in my life. I have no life to live. But His life. His is the life. Christ lives in me. And the life I live... <laughs> 
It's not I, but Christ that liveth in me. Wow, what an amazing thing. Paul was on the money when he said, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. See, most believers live their lives on a roller coaster of events. And each event represents another crisis that requires God's intervention. Here we go again. All right, now it's time to get God in on it. That's how we live, isn't it? And it's when we get that phone call that all of a sudden prayer becomes important. It's whenever we get the news of this bad news or this tragedy that takes place. Bam! All of a sudden, boy, it's a renewed vision of what God needs to be and who He needs to be in our life. I mean, that's just, we live this way. Our memories are so short, just like the disciples. Here they were. He was doing all those miracles for those people through the whole entire book of Mark. And we come up to the feeding of the 5,000. And once again, even though they felt that it was an impossible task, he did the impossible. Now they run into another situation. 4,000 needing fed. And instead of saying, well, he did it before, he can do it again. They say, can a man? Let me give you three words that would benefit all of us in times of unusual pressure and need. And all of us are under the gun at times. All of us find ourselves under tremendous pressure and in need. Here are three words. Number one, breath. No, breathe. I misspelled it. Somebody spell breathe for me, would you? Ah, that's where I was missing it. I didn't put the E at the end. I kept thinking, wait a second, that's how I spelled it, but I'm not pronouncing it correctly. How many of you took hooked on phonics, basically? And others of you took all that newfangled stuff in the school system? Well, I I took the stuff, you just read it based on how, you know, you learned it, and E sounds like a... uh, uh, Right? And an A is like... uh, uh, Right? So when you read it, there you go. E-A is E. All right. Anyway, that's the extent of my, uh, what do they call that? English. Thank you. See, that's how astute I am at English. But breathe. That's the first word, breathe. Take a deep breath and slow down. I mean, you're confronted with a, a major issue. You have unusual pressure in your life. A need has arisen. Hey, just breathe, okay? Just Would you just... Take a deep breath and slow down. Boy, I'll tell you what, how frantic do we become in a midst like that? I mean, we're confronted with a situation and we're like, man, i got to do something. Man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Oh, man, I wish I knew what to do. I wish I knew what to do. Just breathe. Step back. Take a deep breath and step back and just kind of... That's the first word. Here's the second word, and I just touched on it. Mm, See, it's all too much like, it's like salvation. How do you separate calling on the Lord, repenting, and all that stuff? How do you separate all that stuff? You know, everybody makes, you know, semantics are really important. You know, you start, theologians start just dissecting the Bible. And it's like, when did that happen? And when did that happen? Does this come before this? And does this come before that? And you go, wow, that's a tough one. Watch what happens here. So you breathe. You take a deep breath and slow down. Then you back up. 
See, I told you, it just runs together. You back up and see the big picture. Okay, so here we go. Problem confronts me. I feel overwhelmed by it. So what do I do? I go, slow down, Mark. Don't freak out. And then what do I do? I back up and I try to see the big picture. There's more to it than just me. There's more to it than just mine. There's got to be more to this thing. I've got to slow down. I've got to take a breath here. But, but let me step back and see the big picture. You try to understand a little bit what's really going on. Maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe I'm not seeing the whole picture. Boy, that'll fix you sometimes. Isn't it amazing how many times you miss things? There was something I missed the other day. I, I was looking for something. I can't remember what it was. And I literally was looking right at it. it but I was looking at something above the page here. And it was sitting right below it. And I said, I don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see it. And somebody came up to me and went, right there. And I went, you've got to be kidding. You know what happened? I got too zeroed in on that one thing. If I'd have stepped back and saw the hole, guess what would have came? Boom, there it would have been. And that's what I'm talking about. Again, it's practical. It's just practical. And then finally, here's the next one. So, breathe, back up, and number three, believe. Remember that God isn't surprised and He is there. God's not surprised. God's not as, as overwhelmed. He's not overwhelmed because He already knew it was coming. He knew it was coming. So, don't you believe it's time to stop living on the roller coaster of events in your life and start cruising the highway of hope? I think it is. And, and, and again, you may be a very good Christian, and maybe you as a whole have control of those kind of issues. But I'm going to tell you something. If we're not careful, no matter how spiritual we believe ourselves to be, no matter how much we try to stay close to the Lord, if we are not careful, we can turn around and put God on trial when a problem arises. But may I say, we need to face each day with hope. And we need to face each day with the confidence that we're not alone and that we're in good hands. Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. Turn there. What a tremendous verse it is. I'll tell you what, if there was somebody that faced some opposition, somebody that faced some real problems and circumstances in their life, it was David, King David. Before he was ever king, he faced a lot of issues. Notice what he says here. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? See, the thing that David did that the disciples failed to do was when he looked, he saw Jesus. And he saw the Lord. And he remembered what the Lord had done in this particular case. He says, listen. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You want to know why we fear so often? Because our focus isn't on the person, Jesus Christ. It's on the problem. The psalmist said, no, I'm not doing that. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
I, I find all of my strength, I find all of my uh, uh, um, uh, hope, I find all of my ability in Him. Outside of Him, I have nothing. The disciples had experienced the feeding of 5,000. They saw it firsthand. They experienced it firsthand. They'd experienced the feeding of the 4,000. Firsthand. They had been privy to healings and demons being cast out and people being raised up. And yet, here they are out on a ship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's all because we don't have any bread. Are you kidding me? After all the basketful of loaves that were left over with the feeding of the 5,000, the seven baskets that were left over from the feeding of the 4,000, after Jesus, who is the bread of life, are you kidding me? He could feed them, all of those people, with only a few fish and some, a few loaves of bread, and you're thinking or somehow believe that that's what he's upset about? That's what he's talking about? That he needs your bread? See, it's not what Jesus needs from the disciples. It's what the disciples need from Jesus. And we need to stop putting God on trial every time difficulty knocks. Every time a trial comes our way. Every time a testing finds its way into our life. We need to start looking at Him and going... Can a man. He's not a man. He's God. And he has proven himself over and over and over again. May God help us to stop putting Jesus on trial. Like the disciples did. I know it's natural. I know it's our flesh. I know it's our nature. But remember... We have a divine nature now. We're not bound by that atomic nature. We don't have to be ruled anymore by that. We died with Christ according to Romans 6.4. We were buried with Him and we raised to walk in newness of life. We've begun, He's begun a good work in us, a new uh, a work in us, and we'll perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be bound anymore. We don't have to put Him on trial any longer. He saved us. He washed us. He placed us in His body. He put us in His family. He guaranteed us a home in heaven. He provides for us. He he protects us. He provides us with the peace we need. Purpose and power. We see evidence of it all around us. May we not, confronted with difficulties or trials, put Him on trial any longer. But we stop saying, can a man? And start saying, the master can. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all that you mean to us, everything you do for us. And